Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. The Ringer is introducing a new live Twitter after show covering season two of HBO's Big Little Lies with jam sessions Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes. Immediately after each episode, they'll be going live to give their initial reactions and break down everything we saw in the episode. And to kick us off, there'll be a special season two preview airing this Friday, June 7th at 12 p.m. Pacific. So join Amanda and Mina for that this week and then catch Big Little Live every Sunday night on Twitter. Stop! Binge milk contains adult content! Are you completely mad? And spoilers! It's alright, it's alright, it's alright. Adult content and spoilers! I heard you the first time. Quite the little podcast, aren't you? How old are you, anyway? Ten. Ten. The things I do for love. And binge mode, right now. The Mad King is dead. Rhaegar lies beneath the ground. Why weren't you there to protect your prince? Our prince wanted us here. Where's my sister? I wish you good fortune in the wars to come. And now it begins. No. Now it ends. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode Game of Thrones. Proudly part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. It is a great website. (laughs) Joining me today. Now that he's finished humming Reigns of Castamere as I entered the studio to really set the tone for today's finale pod, it's Ringer Senior Creative, your Emmy-winning maester. Yes. Jason Concepcion. Do, 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 Mal. <laughs> Once more, it's time for Benjamin Game of Thrones, where we've explored every single episode of Game of Thrones, the television series. If you haven't already... And if you've gotten here without doing it, incredible. <laughs> please subscribe to this podcast on please. Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get them. And please rate and review us. Seven point a star for reading, five stars for binge mode reviews. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, and which will keep going strong. Strong. God. During the long night. The groups were strong. Between binge mode seasons. Also. Head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our merch. Comfy, cute, and a great way to reveal yourself to fellow binge heads across the land. Ed, why don't you come and see us at the third annual Con of Thrones? Do it. Which is coming to Nashville, Music City, Tennessee, this summer, July 12th to 14th. Celebrity guests include Nikki Coster-Waldau, Jamie. Oh, my God. Johnny Bradley, Sammy. Whoa. Hannah Murray. Whoa. Jilly. <laughs> And Joey Dempsey, Gendry. Incredible. Man. And more. What a lineup. Full weekend, day passes, and special Valerian passes are now available at conofthrones.net. So get your passes now. Come share some Mara's milk with us, mm. even some Giant's milk. Mm. Love the clots. Last time on Binge Mode, we answered your Raven Scrolls in an All Thrones edition of Ask the Underscore. And today, 
We're completing our binge mode Game of Thrones ah! journey for now. We will, of course, be back with you for future binge modes. About what? Stay tuned. Stay tuned to find out. On the Thrones front, we will, of course, return for a new book, for a spinoff. Basically, any excuse we get. So keep an eye on your feeds. But today, like John, we need to head beyond the wall, at least for the time being. As always, speculation and spoiler warning, we will be going deep. Give us the longest deep you've ever given us here. Deep. Oh, my God. Oh, my Oh my god! I honestly feel out of breath just from watching. I could have gone. I could have gone longer. Some red viper esque (laughs) stamina there. That's right. That's what they say about me, you know. (laughs) On details from the show and the books alike, (laughs) from across the entire series. So ride on through with us after Isaac opens the gate. Because it's time for some superlatives. Uh, An interview with everyone's favorite prince. The prince who must not be named. (laughs) And our closing thoughts on this epic tale. All right, we're going to start off today with something fun. Yay. Some awards for the series as a whole. Because we obviously, like many other people out there, spend a lot of time critically assessing the yes. final season of the show. But today, we want to take some time to celebrate. Yes! Celebrate so many of the things that brought us so much joy over the years, that brought so many of us together. And much to Isaac's dismay, we cannot limit ourselves to seven awards like he cannot. wanted us to. We can't! But he is refusing, cruelly, I might add, to let us go to 70 awards. So we're going to settle, you know, somewhere in between-ish. And we're going to try to go rapid fire so that we can hit as many topics today as we can. Remember, binge heads, elsewhere on Ringer Game of Thrones properties, we have already shared some of our other best picks for best episode, best season, best moment, best heat check, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we will not be repeating those today. First up, series MVP, character edition. Yes. Who you got? I think this is an easy choice. I think we have the same one. It's Jon Snow. It's his story. It's his backstory that provides so much of the narrative momentum behind the series. Of course, his parentage was the question that George mm-hmm. asked Dan and Dave in order to seal the deal, so mm-hmm. to speak. He's the hero. He's our avatar in a lot of ways. The classic fantasy hero in many ways, but hidden from view for much of the early part of the story, it's Jon Snow. Jon is my pick as well for the reasons you just said, the position that he has occupied in our hearts from the first moment that we saw him all the way through to the end, the closing shot of the series, which is Jon and us thinking about Jon and the rest of his life and his future. His character arc connected to 
almost every single core theme in the story. This idea of choice, this idea of identity, this idea of the family you choose. You know, who are you? Cripples, bastards, and broken things. Cripples, bastards, and broken things. Wear it like armor. You know, who are you? Who does the world try to make you think you have to be? How do you push back against that? How do you make the choice that you know you need to make? And then how do you live with it once you do? All of those ideas are there with John in extremely powerful and moving ways. And he connects in the timeline of the show to so many of the other major characters that we care about. Like, I'm sure for you, the other contenders here were many of the Starks, Sansa, Arya, etc. And not only that, not only is he intimately intertwined with these other people that we care about so much in the story as it's unfolding, but he's our bridge to the past and the future as well. that's a great point. The way that it connects us back to Ned and Lyanna and Robert and so many of the inciting incidents that spawn everything that is the story we're now reading and watching. And then, of course, when we think about the future and what's to come and the questions that still linger over the tale, so much of it is about John and what his life might be. So, John, for me as well. What about series MVP acting category? Now, who is the MVP actor of Game of Thrones? So many possibilities here. Yeah. Just incredible performances across the show. And I was tempted by almost every Lannister. (laughs) You know, Charles Dance, I think if he had been on for the entire end of the show, might have been the runaway pick here. And obviously, Lena Headey and Nikolai Kostrawaldo are just fabulous. And one of the neat things about Game of Thrones in general is that some of these people were established already, and so many of them were not, and were thus revelations to us. Ultimately, the pick is Peter Dinklage. For his role... As Tyrion Lannister. The character might have faded over time, but the performance certainly did not. Just astonishing moment to moment. The different emotions that he was able to convey. So much hilarity and levity, but also some of the absolutely most gutting and distressing things in the story involve Tyrion as well. And he's able to convey anger and despair and resent and hope, and joy, and lust, and anything else with equal a plume. And it was just really a tremendous privilege to watch. Just an incredibly complex character. I picked him as well with Maisie Williams as my runner-up. I think she was, I don't know if anybody got better over the course of the series than Maisie, but surely from the perspective of on-screen time, Dinklage is a load-bearing pillar of this series. He's in just scene after scene after scene and incredibly subtle and complex performance. It's, I agree with you, Peter Dinklage. Wonderful stuff. All right, next. Yeah. You just mentioned that idea of getting better. Yeah. Most improved character over the course of the show. I'm going to pick Sansa Stark, Mm. who, who really rose in estimation in my eyes and yours as well when we the first yep. tranche of binge mode, <laughs> the podcast episodes, yep. and her arc in that kind of compressed time frame really shines. And you really understand her motivations, why she makes the decisions she makes. And she just becomes such a, you know, she starts out of this kind of naive girl who wants to rule in a kind of frivolous way. And then she, what she becomes at the end is this really 
firm and authoritative and respected mm-hmm. ruler in the truest sense, a leader yep. in a real sense. And, I, and I'm just in awe of that character. I completely agree. Yeah. I was very torn between two characters, but since yeah. you picked Sansa, I will I will pick the other character, though I endorse your Sansa pick yeah. wholeheartedly and watching Sansa evolve and mature throughout the course of the story was just really a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> it really was a pleasure. Uh, I'm going to go with Sam. Yeah. Samuel Tarly, who came to us, the Night's Watch, John, all of it, as a self-professed craven afraid of his life, afraid of the people in it, afraid of the future, afraid of everything, and became one of the strongest, most self-assured characters in the entire story. A reliable friend, open-hearted, open-minded, a scholar, never going to give up on anyone or anything, is going to fight for what he knows is right and what he believes in and for the people he believes in. Listen, lover of ladies, as Dolores has said. (coughs) (coughs) Sam the Slayer in more ways than one. So I'm I'm clearing my throat, just like (laughs) Sam does before he gets to business. (laughs) Sam is, as we've discussed at length, the avatar for George R. R. Martin in many ways, and that's why so many people thought that he was going to be the one who actually wrote A Song of Ice and Fire at the end instead of just dropping it on the table and saying that he contributed to the title. But Sam is also one of the best proxies for the reader or the viewer. He is the avatar for all of us. And one of the messages that I'm most grateful for at the end of this story is the one that Sam really allows us to access and think about, which is believing in yourself, you know, never giving up on who you are and who you can be and really, really, (laughs) I just get emotional thinking about it. it. There it is. (laughs) It's like the magic is inside of all of us. You know, there's that great moment where Sam says, you know, I wanted to be a wizard. And it's like he is in so many ways and he always could be. And he was around people like his father who were cruel and made him think otherwise and made him doubt himself. And to watch him bloom and blossom and to not only the Grand Maester, but just somebody who had the courage to say, I am who I am and this is my part in the world. It's just really special. Very grateful for him. Wonderful. Oh, this is a delicious one. Best villain. We had the same pick here. Same pick. I just want to say about your pick, which is the same as mine. I respect that. I respect that. that. (laughs) Listen, I was watching, uh, you know, just for some of the research, I watched that, you know, his intro skinning the stag it's incredible no one has come into a show oh my god ever in the history of television hotter and more confident and owning the scene like charles dance that's tywin lannister as tywin lannister dressing down (laughs) his disappointing son jamie lannister it is fucking iconic he owns it from the first oh my God. second it's amazing and from that first second all the way until the end yeah. on the privy he is the full embodiment the yeah. entire way of the things that he believes in there is never a moment as there are with some of the other villains on the right. show where you doubt his ability yeah. to completely see through whatever yes. his agenda is yeah. you never doubt it and that's actually what makes him so scary you know what's the scariest thing in the world really is it the mysterious ice zombie monster 
and his army of the undead. No, it's the dude sitting across from yeah. you at dinner who you know might be contemplating your demise at that very yes. moment. What letter is he writing? What does that what does that mean about you and your future and your family? Also, just the language, the yeah. actual things that Tywin says, the manner in which he says them. I mean, think of a scene like his scene with Tommen, you know, what makes a good king? Pitch fucking perfect. perfect every word, every step of the way. Something like his exchange with Tyrion about how he would rather be consumed by maggots than let Tyrion inherit Castor Lyrock. Yeah. You only feel that sense of absolute horror yeah. as the person watching that. You feel the way Tyrion does hearing it if the person delivering it is someone to be taken seriously, as someone yeah. who could follow through on any of the threats that he's saying. And in some ways, I mean, look, season six of the show is my favorite season. I'm not uh -huh. saying the show was not good after season four. That right. would not be true. But in some ways, the show was never quite the same. I agree. I after Tywin. I agree 100% with you. And I'll go further. I think that his post-red wedding conversation with Tyrion, mm -hmm. when he says, why is it worse to kill a few men at dinner? Mm-hmm than it is to, I'm paraphrasing, basically engage in a war that would right. kill tens of thousands, is kind of the central question around Danny's strategy vis-a-vis -vis King's Landing, which we discussed at length around the final season. Mm -hmm. He was just such a schemer and such a advocate for his house. Yes. And viewed from the other side, like if he was a Stark, if he was on your side, yes, he's a hero. Not only a hero, but one of the greatest heroes, greatest statesmen yes. in the history of this story. Such a good point. Think specifically of the way he talks about legacy. Yes. If a Stark hero says, it's what remains of you when you're gone, yes. then we like, spend hours, weeks, months, years, thank the rest you. of our lives yes. talking about <laughs> yeah. how inspiring that idea is. Yes. But something about it coming from Tywin makes it terrifying makes it unnerving also the effect that he had on all the other characters in his orbit and the characters who were outside of his orbit what's that line you know seven kingdoms united in fear of tywin lannister he was the only character in the entire story yeah. who actually ever had that kind of effect on the world even of course famously the night king most of the realm was like i don't really think that's real yeah. tywin was the one who everybody lived in fear of and so Cersei was able to approximate some of that, but, not, yeah, not but right something now. like what happens with Cersei in season eight, where her impact is essentially relegated to just, I'm watching from the balcony. It's, it's not possible that that could have happened with Tywin. The other thing, you mentioned Cersei, and I'll just close with this. No one saw the board clearer. Not even Bran Stark sees the board clearer than Tywin Lannister did. He saw every angle, understood where everyone was coming from, understood their motivations. When everybody else was in shock at Rob Stark's success, he was like, okay, I underestimated him. Right. Clearly, I underestimated he's him. He's a boy and he's, he's a, never lost a battle. Yeah. He'll do anything because do, he doesn't know enough to be he, afraid. That he, was one of the best He doesn't advice. know. And not only that, he's absolutely talented on the battlefield. I need to find a different way mm -hmm. to get him. And that's not something that any other character in this story, I think, would be able to do, would be able to say, I'm wrong. And not only am I wrong, I'm going to use that information to figure out how to attack this next. But he had one blind spot, and that was... His commitment to legacy did not allow him to see what Cersei was and what Cersei and Jamie were, we're doing. doing. Yeah. And 
that was the tragedy of Tywin, and it was absolutely devastatingly effective. Yeah, I agree with you in, in the sense that the story was never quite the same when Tywin left the scene. The moment when Cersei tells him about her and Jamie and says, oh my God, you really don't know, yeah. is quietly an all-time Thrones inc- moment. Because of what you just said, making you think about the fact that the thing he cares about most, family, legacy, the power of the name Lannister, yeah. that's also the one thing he's blind to. And that's a fascinating insight into human nature yeah. and human weakness and fallibility. And then, you know, the reason that I love that, since you brought up Rob, that because he doesn't know enough to be afraid line is because it's not the way, typically, that other people think. Right. You know, and even if it took Tywin a little bit to get there, he got there and he's able to say, I need to make an adjustment. How would things have gone for so many of the other characters in a position of power or operating from the shadows in a position of power if they had just said, I misjudged someone. Right. And the fear that I project is not actually enough. It's not enough to assume that that fear will rule somebody else. I need to figure out another way. Tywin, incredible stuff. Just a moment to say that my runner-up is Joffrey, Mm. who uh, I don't know if I've ever hated, actually hated a character more than I hated Joffrey. Listen, I know we're we're on the clock here, but is the next one, is it urgent? Is it urgent? (laughs) Did my mother send for me? What did she say? (laughs) Is it urgent? (laughs) Hey, I think you need to, uh, you need to go to bed. I'm not. I wonder but if they sh- have the soft hearts of women. Say, <laughs> Ellen, bring me his head. All right. Tywin Joffrey, obviously big figures in the books as well. But what about some of the changes? What is the best book to show change? We often complain about the changes. What's yes. the best one? There's some good ones. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to say Hard Home. The depiction of Hard Home, which happens off screen, so to speak, off page in the books. It's uh, the only inkling that we have of something bad happening there is a letter mentioning dead things in the water that's sent to Castle Black. In the show, however, they turn this into really a set piece moment for the battle between good and evil and John's policy towards the wildlings. It becomes such an important and— yeah incredibly detailed and fleshed out moment from something that's just a couple of lines in the book. And I thought it was not just cool, but actually structurally important to the story after that point. What about you? That was one of my contenders as well for all the reasons you just mentioned. Only slightly edged out by my pick, which is Arya as Tywin's cupbearer. It's a great one. During the Harrenhal sequences in season two. You know, would it have been nice to get Arya all that time with Roose Bolton, the leech lord? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But ultimately, I think we and both of those characters were much better served by pairing those people together. First of all, you know, you already praised Macy Williams's acting, but you hang with Charles Dance in a scene and it's like, hangs with him. Holy shit. We're watching something special happen here. Trading blows with him. Really hangs with him. Also, it does two things for those characters. For Arya, it gives us an insight into simultaneously how savvy she is, how crafty she is, the way she's stealing letters and communications, the way that she's observing, the way that she's changing her accent and then explaining it to him to try to maintain her cover, even though clearly he knows that many parts of it are bullshit. And yet, doesn't ever say, I'm going to use one of my kills on this guy and just try to end the war right here. There's still not only a little bit of vulnerability there, but a little bit of myopia. And so it's important 
to remember that Arya is not perfect, that Arya is a kid, that Arya, like anybody else in the world, can be short-sighted and make mistakes. From Tywin's perspective, it's so humanizing. It's one of the most humanizing sequences that we ever get with him. When he asks Arya questions, when he talks to her about, this is a heroine of yours, you know, when she's talking about Visenya Targaryen and dragon riding and fierce warriors, when he mentions his own daughter and how Arya reminds him of Cersei, talks about teaching Jaime to read, asks about her father, well-read stonemason. It's just such a lovely sequence. Obviously, his incredible speech about legacy, one of his incredible speeches about legacy, takes place in that sequence too. And then even something like when he gives her the mutton that he doesn't want. Of course, you can say, well, is he just taste testing, you know, because— the wolf's being, is, is his food poisoned? Is he just using Arya as a pawn? Maybe. But it also opens up this whole sequence of tenderness that's just really, really special. Yeah, so I think it's wonderful that we got that. A nomination here from Zach Cram that he felt we would be remiss not to mention. And you know what? He's right. All of the Varys Littlefinger exchanges yeah. that we get in the show because neither character is a point of view character in the books. And so these moments where it's just the two of them yeah. in the throne room trading barbs, talking about what the realm is. Those are not things that we have access to in that fashion in the books. And that was a great first and second accent work. <laughs> <laughs> there from Little Finger. Oh my God. That was before the third and fourth accents when it just really gets crazy. But first, and really, accent one and 1.5. Good, good. Good, good. Good, good. good. Memorable shade. <laughs> Pull up your hood. Memorable shade. Oh, God. I want to see your Aunt Lysa in the veil. <laughs> I brought you a gift. <laughs> what a fucking maniac. Uh, Everyone is your enemy. Give us Everyone that one. is your enemy. Everyone is your friend. Be everywhere. Be nowhere. All the time. I'm freaking out. I think I smoked way too much of this. It's very strong. I'm uh, freaking out just a little. Do you have water? Miss him. I know. What really a, do. Really do. But incredible. He's he's honestly high up on the villains list, too. He really is. <laughs> he really, <laughs> really is. Really is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Next. Best show only character. I think this is a runaway right here. It's a runaway. Roz and her turnips. Oh, love those turnips. <laughs> love Roz. Kind of an amalgamation of several characters mm-hmm. and one used to weave together numerous storylines. Uh, of course, who could forget her flashing that V on the back of a turnip truck? <laughs> How about the size of those turnips? How about the size of those turnips? Who could forget her oh, splashing some agua on the lady areas out of a bowl in Grandmaster Picel's chambers? Thing about kids. <laughs> uh, really incredible work. Big fan of Roz. Amazing. Sorry to see her go. You know, we have the fashion she left. Wow, brutal end. We had that quick redheaded whore mention in the books, but that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And Roz is a quite vibrant and active participant in the events of the realm through her horrifying demise in season three, you know, turning spy, working in Varys' employ, ratting on Littlefinger, two feather beds. Yes. (laughs) Two feather beds. (laughs) Roz is exceptional. 
two other characters that I can't wait. You know, as as talk about this the guy. co-hosts of Binge Mode, we are contractually obligated to mention. One of them is the Flame of Truth, Kinvara. So, yeah, and the other truth. one is Ollie. Ollie, who at the time of his demise was younger than Bran. Younger than Bran. Younger than Bran. <laughs> I have one more. Yeah, the MTW, <sighs> the Molestown Whore, who. Another one that just left us too soon. Left us way too soon, Molestown Horror. Bells for Molestown Horror is one of the my favorite moments in binge mode history. <laughs> Same. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if I've laughed harder in the studio than Bells for Molestown Horror. Fucking Molestown Horror going out talking about a cock the size of a hangnail. What a legacy. Cock the size of a hangnail. <laughs> Next. Yes. Best show quote. I could not limit myself to one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You couldn't even limit yourself to 20. I- <laughs> Let me run through these. Do you want to go first? What's no, your no, favorite? I mean, my, I would just, for me, it's like all the little bits of, this is self-serving, but all the little bits of incredible voice work from Picel, Littlefinger, yes. Tywin, King Robert. Gods. Gods. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, any little finger, most of all, is oh, just yeah. my favorite. Anything that inspired your voice work is a gift from the gods. Yeah. And we've done so much of it already, but, you know. Give us a little bo- give us a little Bobby B, though. It's been a long time since we've had some Bobby B. And with a hammer. <laughs> gods, I was strong then. Caved in his breastplate. <laughs> it's not as fun. Little finger is the most fun, and it's followed closely by Picel. Anything but the... <laughs> Not even a maester. Not even a maester. Gaiman. Gaiman. Build from the citadel for experiments. Fire man. Anytime uh, Isaac asks us to, you know, predict our runtime for an episode, we we lie to him and we say yes. it's going to be a quick one. Quick one. Ah, quick one. <laughs> <laughs> I see the same picture. I ask myself, will this action help me to make this picture a reality? Pull it out of my mind into the world. And I only act if the answer is yes. You, me, on the Iron Throne, my penis engorged. (laughs) Sometimes when I try to understand a person's motives, I play a little game. I assume the worst. What's the worst reason they could possibly have for saying what they say or doing what they do? And then I ask myself, how well does that reason explain what they say and what they do? Memorable shade. You know what kind of stories I men enjoy the most? Ones about rich girls that never meet. That's it. That, those are my favorite lines in the entire story. That and Pycelle's The Thing About Kings, which is iconic because <laughs> Roz is in the background washing her vagina off in a bowl. <laughs> it's like iconic. Oh, the vag bowl. <laughs> what about you? What about me? Well, I'm grateful for all of those lines because they inspired such comedic brilliance from you. Some of the other ones, I'll try to run through them quickly. Tyrion to John. 
never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not wear it like armor and it can never be used to hurt you. In many ways, one of the mission statements for the story, a beautiful moment between those two characters and a beautiful reminder for all of us. Another one that we talk about a lot, Barrack to John, Beyond the Wall. The enemy always wins and we still need to fight him. We've mentioned this before, but that very Dumbledorean, Harry idea of just persevering and continuing to fight and fight so that evil may be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. Another one that we bring up a lot. We tend to mention the brand Ned version from the books, but the show version is a Rob line to Talisa when he's telling her about Ned. I asked him, how can a man be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave, he told me. Courage, obviously one of the pillars of the story, and that sentiment, tapping into the idea that it is okay to be afraid and that you could be, not only can you be brave when you're afraid, but that's when you truly find that courage is very inspiring. Ariane Sansa in season seven, repeating Ned's words, stark words. Yeah. Northern words. In the winter, we must protect ourselves, look after one another. When the snow falls and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. I find myself thinking about this a lot, not only in terms of how it relates to the story, but honestly, just in my own life. Wow. Thinking about the pack survives. Dark. You know? <laughs> Dark stuff from Mal Rubin. Life can be lonely, yes, true. man. And just Tough. other people sometimes are great. One of my other favorites, absolute favorites, this one crushes me, Brianne to Pod talking about Renly, but can apply it to many characters and to ourselves as well as we can with all these great ones. Nothing's more hateful than failing to protect the one you love. Your boy Littlefinger to Sansa. This is an iconic one. There's no justice in the world, not unless we make it. And then, of course, the power of when Sansa parrots that back to Littlefinger at the moment of his demise is just incredible. Another iconic one, Varys to Tyrion. Power resides where men believe it resides. Yes. It's a trick, a shadow on the wall, and a very small man can cast a very large shadow. That's not only a treatise on one of the story's core ideas, power, but an insight into that quintessential fantasy idea. Any person can make a difference. One of my absolute favorites, this is not one that we talk about as much, but it's one that, in light of how John's storyline concluded, I've been thinking about quite a bit, because of the role Mance played in John's life and really in the story, the freedom to make my own mistakes was all I ever wanted. That's an incredibly powerful idea. Another Tyrion one to John from Banger, way back right when. right off the top. Right off the top, early in the season. A mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone. In the book, there's the if it is to keep its yeah. edge follow-up. Just incredible. Again, tapping into why stories matter and why we love them so much. My boo, Jorah, coming in with a perspective to Danny. No one can survive in this world without help. Very true. Try to remember that. Eamon, Maester Eamon, DNA all over the end of the story. To John, way back when, I will not tell you to stay or go. You must make that choice yourself and live with it for the rest of your days as I have. That idea, not only of choice, but of regret. Yeah, very powerful. Jamie, this is... What he says to Brienne back when they're on the road when he's her prisoner, we get a slightly different version of it later from Jamie to Marcella. We don't get to choose who we love. Hard not to think about that line really all the time now yes. when we think about Jamie, given the decision that he ultimately made to return to Cersei. This one, 
I find myself thinking about this one quite often in a, a way that is like outsized to the role it actually played in the story. But when Yara says to Theon back in season two, don't die so far from the sea, I just have always found that so touching. And you talk about this a lot, how family is just this different thing. Yeah. And there's going to be this element of just wanting to care and protect that other person that we see right there with those two. Mel's iconic. There's only one hell princess, the one we live in now. I don't know why I laugh when I think about that <laughs> line, but it's it's just such a zinger. Mel was really quite a gift. Man. Another zinger from Davos. He of the true perspective, real philosopher, quietly. Nothing fucks you harder than time. Nothing fucks you harder than time. <laughs> Even if you have the fermented crab meat, nothing will fuck <laughs> nothing. you harder then time. You're just getting fucked by time. <gasps> All right. I, I'll cap myself there. <laughs> What's next? How about, you know, like Game of Thrones is known for its crackling dialogue, incredible speech scenes. So what is, according to you, Mal Rubin, the mm. best speech? For me, it's got to be Littlefinger's chaos is a ladder speech. Swallow us all. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Many who try to climb it fail, but never get to try again. The fall breaks them. And some are given a chance to climb, but they refuse. They cling to the realm, or the gods, or love. Illusions. Only the ladder is real. The climb is all there is. An incredible little finger moment, an incredible Varus moment, an incredible montage. Not only is the language of the speech itself so compelling and thought-provoking, but it's such a snapshot of how when Thrones was at its best, the plotters, the characters like Littlefinger and Varys were saying and doing things like this. It's just special to this day. What's your pick? My pick is, and it is tough because honestly, there's like, it's probably a dozen speeches that oh, could yeah. win this. I went with Tywin gunning the stag from uh, season one, but episode seven, you win or you die. For all the reasons I mentioned before, it's just everything you absolutely need to know about a character mm -hmm. is just right there. Yep. And it's on display within minutes and Charles Dance just inhabits that person. Like all the mannerisms, things he's doing as he's gutting that stag and when he decides to turn around and address Jamie and when he decides to not do it. You know, you've been given gifts mm -hmm. few men possess and just dressing him down for wasting. And what have you done with it? Your glorified bodyguard to mm -hmm. two kings. It's incredible shit. And then is like, you will take the army mm -hmm. and face Rob Stark. It was like, holy shit. I wow. need you to become the man you were meant to be. Unbelievable stuff from Tywin Lannister and Charles Dance. Also, the fact that the stag skinning in the book is Randall. Yeah. With Sam. It's great. Good instance of how they could take these nuggets that George has sprinkled all throughout the tale and apply them in the most high-impact way possible early on in the show. There's also that moment where uh, Jamie's like, but you hate Tyrion. And he's like, yes, but if... Other houses think they can just snatch a Lannister, even the worst Lannister. We are no longer a house to be feared. And that whole part of it is just incredible. 
So my and my runner-ups, Oberyn Martell, I Will Be Your Champion yeah. from uh, season four, episode seven. Mockingbird just gave me chills Same. the first time I saw it. That's on my list, too. Even just the way he, obviously the end note of it, I Will yeah. Be Your Champion, is like- is I Will Be Your Champion. Literally a chill down your spine, but the way he starts it, yeah. too. And what about what I want? And what about what I want? And the it, way he sweeps the torch yeah. as he's talking. It's just, and he whoa. gives you that kind of, you know, it seems like just kind of like a personal anecdote that was funny, but also really heart-wrenching. Yeah. And then- brings it home to that thing that he's been hiding this whole time, which mm-hmm. is, I want vengeance. Yeah. And then Liana Mormont, King of the North. Amazing what shit. What about your uh, runner-ups? I really also love Tyrion's uh, speech at, the, at his trial. Yeah. Not the first trial at the Erie, his King's Landing trial for Joffrey's murder. That entire episode, The Laws of Gods and Men, is yeah. fabulous dialogue and speech-giving, basically start to finish. But... After Shay has testified against Tyrion and he just breaks, despite the agreement that he's made with Jamie to <laughs> behave, basically, and just let this play out the way that Tywin and Jamie have agreed, yeah. Tyrion's devastation at what Shay has done and the injustice, the true sincere injustice of what is playing out, these people, these ingrates who he saved are popping popcorn into their mouth watching him about to be fed to the wolves. And he, despite the rational, logical faculties that he possesses in a way that most people do not, he has to give in to the rage and the, the base instinct to just say, you don't fucking deserve what I've given you. And when he demands trial by combat again, it's just, it's an incredible moment. And even though we've seen it before from him, it somehow doesn't lose its power. It actually lands with a stronger punch. It's it's really exceptional stuff. So many other great speeches, as you've said, but those were, those were top of mind for me. How about, instead of words, we talk about swords. Oh, man. Best battle. Wow. And why? So many to choose from. I am going to pick Hard Home. Obviously, the first depiction of what that White Walker army can really do in battle. It's amazing. And I just remember being pinned to my chair when it started to happen. Probably some of the most kinetic action scenes that that camera work when, you know, John is rushing towards the hut. Yeah. And the camera follows him and he kind of ducks this white and then smashes him and then turns to look at the hut and one one explodes out of it. All that stuff is just a tour de force and just adrenaline pounding. And honestly, who would have ever dreamed you'd see anything like that on a television screen even five years before that? Really like revolutionary and amazing stuff. Even when the Night King is riding Viserion to bring down the wall, yeah. I think you could say we're never more afraid of him than we are when he raises his arms oh, yeah. and stares down it's John at Hardhome. That absolutely is chilling, literally chilling. Yeah, it's an all it's a it's that's a pantheon television moment. Yeah. It really is. Um Hardhome is also my pick for best battle episode. Mm-hmm. Though I did consider Blackwater, sure. which really stands the test of time. And if you return to it, is is just an incredible hour of TV. And the wildfire moment within Blackwater is yeah. is still an all timer. I'm gonna say something that seems contradictory, but I'm gonna try to make this sure. twisted logic work. The Battle of the Bastards. I put it below Hard Home. I put it below Blackwater. Okay. I mean, there's there's something also to be said here for just a battle involving a dragon. So obviously. 
we've spent literally hours and hours and hours talking about our problems with the bells, but watching just from a pure aesthetic perspective, what plays out at the bells is incredible. Same thing for the long night, even for spoils of war. Okay. The actual battle, not the episode in which the battle takes place, but the actual battle. I just really am in the bag for some of the things that happen in Battle of the Bastards. I like it. Even though... (laughs) Even though Ricky Ricky doesn't juke. A lot of things happen that don't make sense. Like, I can see that. And that's part of what lowers the episode overall in our estimation. The Knights of the Vale arriving like Gandalf on Shadowfax to save the day. John doing exactly what he and his commanders had agreed they would not do. Rickon, as you said, (laughs) not just like weaving a little bit to the left or the right. All those things are totally fair notes. Because I'm so invested in John and John's hero's journey, nothing in any of the battles gets me quite as much as the moment where he charges Solo into the cavalry and pulls his sword. It's just like... It's an instant, this is everything I love about this character, even his flaws encapsulation for me. And also, in the choreography of the battle itself, the John Cam that we get and those sequences where, you know, he's being choked in the corpse pit or all of the arrows are raining down around him and they don't hit him, especially because of how the prophecies in the story were ultimately kind of, you know, cast aside. Yes, I now find myself even more grateful for moments like that where you just watch what was happening with John on the screen and said, this is the Messiah. So yeah. I know that's a little bit of a twisted logic, but that ultimately is the thing in any of the battles that I find myself thinking about the most. That's great. I also stand pretty hard for Battle of Castle Black. That's a great one. You felt like this is possibly the end of the Night's Watch. I mean, it's like you really felt... The stakes. In that Such moment. a great moment for John as a leader. A great moment for Sam. Obviously, my dude ghost coming in and just gnawing on the enemy. And, you know, now, especially what happened with John and Danny at the end, we think about yeah. John's tragedy and his tragic love stories. Thinking back now to him holding Egret in his arms, not that that wasn't absolutely crushing Fucking at the time. Ollie again! Fucking Ollie, Ollie again! <laughs> I also have to. Like a really incredible thorn moment because I've talked about this many times, but I love, I just love when a character you fucking hate, when storytellers give you a moment that reframes a character that you hate. And in that moment, when Thorn comes down off the wall and gives the speech, you're like, oh, I get it. I kind of get why he's an asshole because he values this institution more than he values any single person who's a part of it. Mm-hmm. It's not about them, their lives, their feelings. It's about the Night's Watch continuing as an organization, much like Tywin feels about his family. That's all that matters to him. And when he goes down there, Red, those are in the walls. <laughs> yeah. It's like Shakespearean shit. Yeah. He like calls down the thunder. Also, Gren yeah. holding the gate. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, they're shouting the words as the giant that is, bo- that is, is charging at them. I get I get oh. chills with, at that. And not only that, but when John sends him yeah. and, and he they knows. both know. Yeah. They both know sentencing his friends. This to is die. it. Man, that episode we talked about this last podcast really is kind of lost to the sands of time as a, a quietly great thrones episode. Yeah, I agree. All right. Next. Best, and there's so many of these. Mm. Best death. We both have yeah. the same topper. Give us a little musical intro. Yeah. 
when the doors close and the reins start playing, mm-hmm. it is time to leave, people. Man. Listen to your direwolves, all <sighs> of you. We can't pick anything but Rob, Grey Wind, and, and Kat here. We can't. We can't. It's always going to be number one. <laughs> it's always going to be number one. It's a stunning moment in television and in a lot of ways, much in the same way that you, as you noted, the show was kind of never the same after Tywin. There's a before and an after Red Wedding in Game of Thrones. The show was so purposefully pointed towards that moment, you know, in various interviews, the showrunners have said, if we could just get to the Red Wedding. And wow, did they do it. And it is an astonishing moment. Mm -hmm. And those deaths are heart-wrenching. Crushing stuff. That's also, we talk a lot about subversion and the role subversion plays in Game of Thrones. Obviously, plenty of the deaths that come before this, Ned's most particularly, fall into that subversive realm. But the Red Wedding defined subversion on thrones so fully and so horrifyingly that, to your point about the show changing a little bit after that, nothing could ever actually measure up to that again. It's the kind of thing that you actually can only do to that extent once. And then everybody's going to want it because you've trained them for it forever. Some of the other deaths that were in the consideration set here. Hodor. I mean, hold the door. It's just... You got to hold it. Brutal. Ned, obviously, especially given its place in the timeline of the story. You know, again, we're nine episodes in to Game of Thrones when Ned Stark loses his head. It's just, it's an unbelievable Staggering, thing. staggering stuff. So, Ellen, Oberyn's death, certainly in the Mountain and the Viper. And, you know, I think, I think Tywin's death is up here, too. Ugh. Not only because of what it means for the person we lose, but because of what it means for the person who pulls that crossbow trigger twice, Tyrion. 100% agree. Great one. Best kill. So slightly different than best death. What do you have for best kill? I'm going to go way back in time. Thinking about it, I think the recency bias is hurting Arya and the Night King. I think it probably, honestly, it probably should be Arya and the Night King. So I'm going to say that. (laughs) But what I have written down here, and I'll call this my runner-up now, is Drogo tearing out Mago's tongue. Because Mm. it's it's Mm. kind of forgotten now. Obviously a a huge moment when he incurs the injury that then leads to his death. Quite a fateful moment as well. But it's really the only time that you understand what a fucking badass Khal Drogo is. Now that Dothraki, of course, they don't cut their hair until they lose a battle. And Drogo's hair is to the ground Mm -hmm. and scented and oiled with little bells in it. He has never been defeated in battle. And that moment shows you why. He doesn't even need weapons to tear out this guy's tongue. <laughs> when he drops the blades in the ground. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I will not burn your body. I had a Drogo kill in my final set here, too. But crowning Viserys. Great one. A ground for a king. Crown for king. Astonishing stuff <laughs> in the sixth episode of Game of Thrones. I also consider Danny burning Crazy Kras. Oh, Crazy Kras. Dracarys. Great one. Crucial moment for Danny's character, a crucial moment for the dragons. But I ultimately went with Ramsay's dogs <laughs> eating him. Satisfying. <gasps> Unbelievably cathartic for it, the viewer. And of course, for Sansa, seeing her stand there and watch him die. I love Ooh. how she I love how she goes to leave but then comes back. The close-up we get of his fingers twitching yeah. as his blood gushes down his <laughs> arm. I'm laughing right now. The and, and Sansa's saying when he because Rams is like that my my hounds would never harm me. And 
they're loyal beasts. And she says, they were, now they're starving. That is such a microcosm of something you can apply in mass to all of the characters, right? Loyal beasts until they're starving and then what happens. And remember, folks, very literally, feed your pets. Next, best fighter. You can pick a living or a dead character. Who are you giving the championship belt to right now? I think by the end of the series, it's Arya Stark. That's my pick as well. I think we both agree on that. Historical, I'm going to go with Arthur Dane, who, if not for getting stabbed in the back of the head... Right through the neck. ...was about to defeat, what, like half a dozen men, including all of whom were very good fighters. Seven against three, as Ned keeps thinking to himself in the book. And was spoken of by people like Jamie Lannister, great fighters in their own right, as the greatest they ever saw. I love the moment when Bran is watching this with the the then Three-Eyed Raven and says, but he's better than my father. Far better. (laughs) Far better. Yeah, Arthur Dane is definitely in the mix as well. But look, Arya kills the Night King. That's, yeah. Arya is a- Has more moves if you want to put it that way at the end of the day. She's a water dancer- She's a faceless man, a master yep. of so many weapons. Yep. What couldn't she do at this point? There's really nothing that any of us could think of. She's an icon. Incredible stuff. Next. Best fighter duel. Mm. I was tempted to pick the man in the Viper, obviously, but I find myself thinking a lot about the, the battle between Brienne and the Hound. What a crucial moment that yeah. is for both of those characters for Arya, for Pod, for everyone involved. The Hound's story arc is one of the great achievements in the show. Yes. And the way that he (laughs) stands up for Arya here in this fight, and of course, Brienne, she doesn't know. She's just trying to follow through on her oath to Kat, you know, to do her duty and save Arya, especially from this person who she thinks is this horrifying man. And when he says, you know, you're the wrong one to look after her, if you think this, if this is what you think about the world, if you don't understand, such a great insight into his character and into the bond that has really blossomed between him and Arya. And then, of course, the fallout of that with Arya leaving him to die, as she'll say in season eight, first I robbed you. But also the fight is, it's almost unpleasant to watch. Some of the fights are thrilling. This one is like. There's no artistry. There's no technical... Pure violence. Yes, it's violence and savagery. There's biting. There is punching in the face. It is hard. And I think there's something about that, as painful and unnerving as it is to watch, I really admire because... Yeah, I do too. Same. Part of the point of the story is to show you the horror of war and the horror of violence, and you really feel it in that moment. The thing that I really liked about it was, you know, that every time we see Brienne on the screen, she's always being underestimated by and mocked by... Right men who believe that they are at least her equal as a warrior, better than her, clearly. And while the Hound treats her with respect vis-a-vis her ability to handle herself, never offers that derision, he does the thing which a lot of people who try to fight her do, which is, I'm going to overpower her with violence. Mm -hmm. I'm going to punch her in the face. And strength and force. And strength and force. And she is like, I'm going to do you better. I'm going to call upon a deep wellspring of anger and savagery. I am going to bash your fucking face in and throw you off a cliff. Right over the edge. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And it is just an appalling scene to watch. It's troubling. Yeah. What's Um, your pick? My pick is Mountain and the Viper. You know, styles make fights, they say. Mm -hmm. And it's just a great clash of styles. The kind of lumbering mountain who 
we should note, is not quite so lumbering as you think. As many have noted, it's he's incredibly fast for a man his size, as Braun says. Mm-hmm. But that kind of brutishness versus technical skill versus mm-hmm. almost like balletic yes. ability is so fun to watch on the screen. And there's that several moments where you're like, oh, Oberyn is out of his depth here. The mountain's going to catch him at some point and it's over. And then you start to realize, oh, Oberyn is much, right. much better than anybody yes. really knew. This is an uncommonly skilled, not yes. only fighter, but artist. Yeah, there's a moment like where Tywin kind of settles in his chair a little bit where he's just like, oh, fuck, <laughs> you know? It's just a great, great, great scene. Next. Next. Wouldn't be an episode of Binge Mode <laughs> without this category. Best sex scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have the scene with Jorah and, and Mallory Rubin <laughs> that played in season... Oh, God. Infinity, episode infinity of Mallory's imagination. Yeah. Plays in my mind every <laughs> night. That's my favorite one. <laughs> because it's happened so many ways. Oh, boy. What won't we try? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What about you? <laughs> I'm honored by your selection. Yes. Deeply touched, just like I am by Jorah. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Could he ride the dragon, Mal? What's the final verdict there? Oh, he can ride the dragon. Hello. My pick. Yeah. Is John and Egret. That's a good one. And the Lord's kiss in the cave. Those furs come off quick. <laughs> they, they just sure drop do. off. Just knew I wanted to kiss you there is all. <laughs> I know. John Snow. I get it, John. I get it. A prodigy? Sure. Someone told him. Theon? Yeah, probably Theon. That's I, the only one I can think of. Yeah. Or some other, like, Heard it hanging around the brothels? Yeah, something like that. John Snow is a generous lover. If. Listen, he doesn't want it. He doesn't want to leave. <laughs> he has it thrust upon him. <laughs> oh, just a wonderful scene. And and the the emotion of it too, when they take the bath after because they smell bad. And it's you know, we get the moment where Egret says that she just never wants to leave the cave. They should have stayed. Beautiful. They should have stayed forever. Yeah, just fuck the who cares about the whole war and everything going on? No, just, just stay. Stay and bathe. I agree. Next. Expounding off that. Mm. Best lover. I mean, it's got to be Pod the Rod. Sex God Pod. I love it. He is so gifted. Such a prodigy. Yeah. At swinging that sword. He can swing that thing. That professional sex workers. Pros in the language of the streets. Refuse to accept his coin. No, sir. It has been our pleasure. Keep it. It was a gift for us to be with you. Is it just that Pod is like the only one who like went to a sex ed class and just knows the parts somehow? I don't know. Like in that world, if you just know where the stuff is, aren't you like better than 99% of the the dudes in that world? But I've always thought that part of it is probably just that Pod... First of all, selfless, but also because this was his first 
sexual escapade. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really thinking about anything, but just just exploring with just real sincere earnestness and enthusiasm. It was a, about the discovery for him, and there sure. was there was no corner left unexplored. Incredible pod. He gave good dick. <laughs> Who's your pick? <laughs> I'm going to go with Oberyn for the full package. Maybe not as quite as high of peaks mm. like Pod, mm-hmm. but just omnivorous as a man yeah. in his lifestyle, accepting of everyone, willing to take his pleasure with anyone. All the world's pleasure. All the world's pleasure. Inspiring. It's a lesson. And also just the acceptance with which he treated everyone who came into his orbit. I'm going to go with Oberyn Martell. I love it. I love it. Next. Yeah. Best bond. Sure. Best friendship, best bond in the story. Who are you picking? I have John and Sam and John and Tormund as my 1A, 1B. John and Sam, because of what they meant to each other, John as Sam's protector, Sam as John's wisdom and conscience Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And then John and Tormund, because here are these two blood enemies who somehow ended up as probably the strongest allies left Mm -hmm. in the show at the end. Those are my two. What about you? I also considered Sam and John here. I have John and Tormund coming up in another category, but I'm ultimately going with Jamie and Brienne because I just, I can't quit them. I just can't do it. And obviously they shared a romance as well, but I think just the force of their mutual respect and admiration for each other what they were able to see in each other that other people never saw in them or allowed them to see in themselves is, is regardless of how it ended, to me, one of the great achievements in the story and one of the most important things in the story. And I just wish that they had gotten to be together forever, but yeah. it didn't happen, and that's okay. We don't get to choose who we love or who are cherished characters love, but I'm very grateful for their time together. The bath scene, the nighting scene. Yeah, incredible stuff. Jamie saying that he'd be honored to serve under her. It's just so many truly, truly, truly marvelous moments between them. Next. Best surprise duo. It's, of course, Game of Thrones is a show that's known for duos. Who you got? I think we have the same top pick here. Arya and the Hound. It's, yeah, it's great. Unbelievable from the first moment. Yeah. To the last moment. And it is so different from the first moment to the last moment. And yet yes. it never loses its potency. As they evolve in their individual stories, they evolve as a pair. And it is surprisingly the source of some of the most moving gestures and insights into understanding each other in the show. Also, source of sincere hilarity. Lots of hilarity. Every fucking chicken. I'm going to eat every fucking chicken. There's violence, there's horror, but there's vulnerability too. Some surprising vulnerability that unlocks a lot for both of them. And it's just, it's just incredible. I think we all feel like we could just happily watch them ride around the countryside together for the rest of time and never tire of it. I love it. I also had Arya and Tywin up there because it's kind of a forgotten one, mm-hmm. but for all the reasons we mentioned before. This is also where I, where I had John and Tormund in the mix because it is such a surprise, the fact that they find this real fellowship together. And their relationship, more than really anything else in the show, I mean, Sam and Gilly would be in this category too, but it it re- represents that realms of men idea. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. if a wall went up and you were on it's one side you, and I was right. on the other. It's about us finding that kinship together and fighting for something in common. It's great. 
Next. Best family drama. This is an easy one. It's got to be the Lannisters. Yeah, there's just so much there. These three incredibly strong-willed children struggling against the yoke of this incredibly strong-willed father. The Joffrey element. The Joffrey element. It really captures that thing about families, which is you hate the person, but you love the person. You hate them in one moment, and in the next moment, you just can't imagine them not being in your life. So, uh, shouts to the Lannisters and all the joy and pain they've given us. Schemers, achievers, literal incest committers. That was tough. Don't do that. Yeah, I don't know. I was <laughs> wow! Compelling television. What can I say? It, it really, really was. was. It's like that told story and a credit a quote, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. The Lannisters were unhappy in a very entertaining way. <laughs> Uniquely their own way. Next. Best magical creature. Oh, well, everyone knows what you're picking, so just say it. Protect God! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Protect them forever, for all of time. Direwolves for life. Warg bond. Protectors. Companions. Magic. Sure. Love. Love it. Comfort. Love it. Joy. Wanted more of it, man. Wanted more of it. I'm going to go with dragons because you can burn stuff with them and also fly on them. <laughs> uh, and then runner-up smoke baby. <laughs> Stanny Jr. Stanny! Stanny Jr. Da, 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 da. Best ruler. All right. Well, I think part of the equation here is what we're considering ruler. Like, yeah. is it actually somebody who was king or queen? If we're limiting ourselves to that, then I found this extremely hard to answer because most of the rulers are at best flawed and at worst dangerous to mm -hmm. themselves and society. Certainly there are points of Danny's arc where you would have picked her for this, but can't do it now. Became Queen of the Ashes, murdered many people in King's Landing. I am, I am going with Mance Raider here. Wow. King Beyond the Wall because he followed through fully, fully on his promise to his people, which was to get them through that wall to keep them safe. He did it. And, you know, John challenges him and says, isn't their survival more important than your pride? And of course, the thing is, it was, but his pride was also part of their identity. Yeah. And Mance really understood that in a way that few rulers in the show did. Who his people are, what it was going to take to keep them united, what it was going to take to protect them, and why who they are and what they were seeking actually mattered. I love it. It's a great choice. I'm going to go with, and I've been we've been talking about him a lot, but Tywin Lannister. As Hand of the King, he legitimately ruled the kingdoms. Tywin was the wisest of rulers in that he understood that actually ruling is the spotlight's on you. Tywin was running shit. All right, next. Best advisor. So you're not picking Tywin here because you picked him as ruler. Yeah, I mean, so we're he's, he's so him. much more than an advisor. He's an advisor in name only. He does so much more than advise. You <laughs> cannot put Davos and Tywin on the same level. For instance, Davos, who is our pick. Spoiler warning. You can't put Tywin and Varys on the same level at all. Tywin actually is driving. He's driving the car. Mm -hmm. You can't even put Tywin and Ned on the same level because oh, Ned, no, the second not. Ned got behind the wheel of the car, he crashed it into a fucking wall. Well, and Ned never wanted to be there. I mean, Tywin is the puppeteer. You know, right. he's operating from the shadows, controlling every single thing. Best advisor, Davos is a great pick. I'm going to go with Jorah. I'm going to give my man some shine here. Did he always give great advice? No. No, but did anyone always no. give great advice? Hell Certainly no. not. So... 
I think that that would be an unfair standard to hold him or anyone to. And I think that ultimately he did the best job of any of the advisors of understanding who he was advising and of trying to simultaneously support that person and push back when was necessary and appeal to Danny's better nature. You know, a moment like when she wants to go back to Yunkai and murder everyone. And he says that would also be treating men like beasts, trying to get her to remember the gentle heart, to remember that she has to be her people's strength. And the fierce loyalty, you know, obviously started a little rough with the whole spying on her and reporting. That's not great. But once he came to really know who she was, he turned down the royal pardon that he had spent that part of his life doing everything he could to win because ultimately the thing that meant the most to him in the world was loyalty to this person that he loved. Very, very, very few people in the story were that fiercely loyal. He cut off his own skin to return to Danny. I'm going to go with Davos because he's not blinded by love for any of his rulers. That's right. That's why he's on a Varus-esque pace for the number of people he'll serve by Davos, the end of his life. Also, Davos so unloyal he's Davos, yet to return to his wife. Davos was in a <laughs> Davos was in the position of literally being on the execution block like five times and still gave the advice that he felt he needed to give. And I, as Simon would say, I respect that. Love Davos. Miss him. Next. Best castle or set? I'm going to go with the wall. Sure. All the castles are incredible, amazing to see. So does that mean Castle Black or just the wall? The wall itself. Yeah. The wall itself. I'm going to go with just the awe of seeing the wall and understanding what it must have been like for the characters to actually look upon it or like Tyrion to look down from it and piss off the edge of the world. The grandeur, the sheer scale of it, and also just the role that it plays in the story from the moment we see it, Chekhov's wall until it falls. Yeah. I'm going to go with Castle Black. It was kind of the only set that they had for a long amount of time that was kind of in the round. You knew every part of it. They built the whole thing. You knew the walkways, you knew the front of it, you knew the back of it, you know. A little bit of a cheat, but I just, I loved Castle Black. It was the one castle that felt like it had a sense, you had a sense of place when you were there and you understood where the action was taking place, which is in contrast to, you know, King's Landing or Winterfell, which changed over time. Castle Black was fully realized from the first. Next. Best dressed. Oof. I'm going to go with the Lannisters. Everything time in war is great. Great armor. Jamie's brawn. We're going to. Uh, sorry to pull you off of <laughs> off of the beach with lawless jacket. <laughs> is unbelievable. It's and, amazing. You know the lion stuff is great, and also their battle uniforms are really iconic as well. So I'm going to go with the Lannisters. I like it. Cersei's late stage armor neck cover yeah. dresses are are really something. I'm going to go with the Tyrells. Fashion forward always. The Moments when Cersei is ribbing Marjorie for not wearing enough fabric, and then she's watching Joffrey, you know, try on new materials. Oh, give that little square to Marjorie. It should be more yes. than enough right. to <laughs> <laughs> make a gown out of. Obviously, Olena has one of the most signature looks in the series. Loras, very well dressed, very fashionable young man. The whole Tyrell clan. Do they have the best house words? Certainly not, but they have great colors. Great colors. They brought their fashion and their sensibilities up to King's Landing in a way that I really respected. You could spot any one of them and say, that's a Tyrell. I like it. Next. Best musical cue. I'm going to go with The Light of the Seven. Yeah, it's great. The 
absolutely beautiful score that plays over Cersei's blowing up the sept sequence. The piano keys, the shift in pace and tension throughout the score. You hear it, any single part of it you hear now, and you're instantly transported back to watching that for the first time and how you felt when you were. It's incredible. What's your pick? Reigns of Castamere. An oldie but a goodie. Gives me chills (laughs) even now just mentioning it. So iconic and, you know, just a chilling moment that only Kat somehow notices. (laughs) Next. Finally, we got to wrap it here. Best mic drop. Mine is Olena's absolutely astonishing pre-death. Tell Cersei. I want her to know it was me. The line that launched a million memes. Yes. <laughs> the effect that it has on Jamie when she says it, the effect that it has on Cersei much later on when Jamie will share what he's learned, the effect that it has on all of us. She died in that moment, yes, but she went out fully on her own terms, yes. and it is absolutely chef's kiss. Perfect. What's yours? Mine. Yours is a fitting one for us to conclude on. The battle is over. We have won! (laughs) Tywin Lannister entering the throne room. The end of the Battle of the Blackwater as Cersei is about to poison her child. Tough stuff. Incredible. All right. We're going to be joined in mere moments by a very special guest. Yes. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh makes conquering the kitchen a reality with deliciously simple recipes and fresh pre-measured ingredients delivered to your door. All meals come together in 30 minutes max. Call for less than two pots and pans and require minimal cleanup. Plus, with three plans to choose from, including classic, veggie, and family. Delicious family. There's something for everyone. So, get out of that recipe rut and start cooking outside of your comfort zone. Hey, we love food, and we love saving time. We're busy people, need a home-cooked meal, need sustenance, nutrients, that feeling of freshness and deliciousness, and, and... Tell me. Family time. Oh, I love family. You need it all, and HelloFresh helps us find it. You need it all, you want it all, you deserve it all. And for $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash binge 80 and enter the code binge 80. That's hellofresh.com slash binge 80 and enter the code binge 80 for $20 off your first four boxes. And now back to binge mode. Folks, weak men will never rule Dorn again. Never. And today we have proof. Yes. You know him from Henry VIII and his six wives or Black Sight. And you certainly know him from the Dragon Pit. Oh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> lords and ladies. Oh, boy. Knights, hedge knights, squires, mercenaries of all stripes. <laughs> it is the P.O.D. himself, Toby Osmond. Toby, thanks for joining us. <laughs> the P.O.D. How are you doing? P.O.D. I'm doing I'm- <laughs> I'm doing most excellently, most excellently. Thank you very much. Thank you both for having me. I've, I've been getting into your, your podcast and uh, Talk the Thrones as well recently. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, I've got to say, like, I, I've actually, 
I shouldn't say this, but I, I've been on a couple of podcasts before. I even uh, took over one uh, oh. when the hosts were a bit poorly. I sort of did a pirate takeover. But I've got to say, I love your one. I mean, oh, thank you so thank much. You. Yeah, you're weavers of words. You're very good. You're, <laughs> thank you I so much. It. That's well, yeah, very kind of you to say. Enthusiasm. Yeah. Well, thank oh. you so much. So uh, before joining the cast, what was your relationship to the show? You said you were a longtime fan of it, even have read some of the books. Did this play a role in, in anything that you did for your work during season eight? Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was a fan from the very beginning. It's a bit of a sad one, actually. Uh, my father, who passed away, he got me into it. Um, he watched it as soon as it came out first time around. So yeah, I heard of it first from him, like before it was a phenomenon or anything. He was like, uh, he was like oh, you should have a look at this. Give mm-hmm. this a watch. And it was just from that that last line from Jamie pushing Bran out the tower. Yeah. yeah. The, the things we do for love. Yes. Yeah. I was like, I'm in. I'm in. You've got me. I'm watching it. Little did I know, nine years later, I literally would be in it. That's <laughs> but, incredible. Uh, yeah. So, no, I, I'm a, I am a fan. I wouldn't claim to be a mega fan or anything, although I did. I went out to a, a fan screening of it to watch it live in Belfast when it first aired on May 20th. And before it, they did a Game of Thrones quiz. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I came second. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I am all right, actually. I, I, I can hold my own. I won a bottle of uh, White Walker. Johnny oh, Walker. yeah, well, you've got <laughs> this. Yeah, <laughs> that's good shit. So, yeah, consequently, no one at our table can could really remember the episode because we were so drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those uh, those whiskey tastings yeah. can uh, <laughs> yeah, take a toll. <laughs> they take a toll for sure. Yeah, but uh, no, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I take every part I do very seriously in uh, film and television and theatre. Um, so I, I was very much using my not only my knowledge as a fan of the world. I've only read the first three books. I'm going to read the rest, mm. but I've only read the first three so far. I've been reading Don Quixote for the last three oh, years. It's so big. It's so hard to read. God. <laughs> yeah, quite an um, undertaking. Yeah, but uh, don't do it. It's just not worth it. I'm putting it out there. Don Quixote, not worth it. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> read Game of Thrones instead. There you go. Yeah. So uh, I was using my own, my fan knowledge of the books and the world and the series because I was, I watched it all, obviously. And then I also, I watched Pedro Pascal, mm-hmm. who played Oberon, of course, the Red Viper. What a great character. Incredible. Character. I was watching his scenes over and over again to like, just try and absorb the sort of mannerisms and the, the accent and uh, just everything about him because without trying to steal his performance i loved his performance and i loved the character as well the actor's fantastic he's in narcos as well he's a great actor i mean the red viper a doormat and i was i i assume i was his brother so i was Mm. like i'm just gonna try and model it from this guy and then change it like put my own twist on it but yeah so Interesting to hear you say that you thought you might be his brother, because that's obviously one of the things that we want to ask you about. Starting back at the beginning of this process for you, when you first went out for the role, and then when you actually landed the part, what did you actually know about the character at that phase 
of the journey. Was it clear at all who you'd be playing or was it just completely shrouded in mystery because of the nature of, you know, season eight in general and the finale and like endgame season eight plot lines in particular? When in the process did you actually learn more about who you were playing? So, I mean, it was a hilarious uh, combination of all of the above. So before I had the audition, my agent got in touch and said there was this casting on on Spotlight, which Nina Gold's company wanted to see me for. And it was it was advertised because of the secrecy. Mm-hmm. They were looking for five people. One was a, a charismatic man. <laughs> and then they wanted four powerful men. And he said to me, Toby Dubois, I'm afraid you're not going up for the powerful men. <laughs> I was like... I know, that's fine. I'm just pleased you think I'm charismatic, Patrick. Thanks so <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Um, so, but we did know it was for Thrones. They, it said Game of Thrones, but they were being tight-lipped about what the actual characters were. Got it. Now, I got into the audition, and that was when Kate Bone, who's a casting director who was doing a lot of Nina's London castings for Thrones, she said, okay, Toby, so what I want you to do is um, imagine you're the commander or leader, you're in your war council, uh, you're surrounded by your captains, your generals, and you're discussing tactics for defending a city. Then a woman comes in who suggests a tactic, first you disagree, then you agree. In my mind, as soon as she said a woman walks in, I'm like, mother of dragons. <laughs> <laughs> Uh. And I was like, okay, so, and they hadn't given me a script because it was also shrouded in in mm-hmm. secrecy and security mm-hmm. and stuff. I was like, okay, do you want me to ad-lib this or do it without speaking? Because in a lot of commercial castings and actual adverts, you have to do so much but just using a ridiculously overexpressive face. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so uh, I was like, what do you want me to do? She was like, oh yeah, just ad-lib it in a Dornish accent. And I was like, okay, <laughs> cool. Uh, she was like, it's Dornish character, you know that? I'm like, sure, yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> first I heard, first I oh heard of it God. being a Dornish role, yeah. Um, luckily, so then you, um, you propose marriage to Daenerys Targaryen <laughs> in you. your improvised Dornish accent. No, I played hard to get. But yeah, I just went off on a rant, and uh, which I'm quite uh, want to do. So you, you may have to stop me a few times. Um, but yeah, I just went off on a rant. I was speaking in this sort of spanish South american sort of mockery really it was a farce <laughs> but uh yeah they let me on for some reason and uh yeah it was great it was actually a really fun audition but of course i i left the room thinking oh that was fun i'm sure i didn't get it and then i look around at all the other guys in the room who were like identical versions of me but like more macho and muscular and good looking i'm like oh damn it damn it i really want to do this gig man but uh yeah and then yeah and then it was uh onto set we only saw script when we were on set and we didn't see the whole episode script at all that was a total no-no i mean obviously the the main cast will get that um with their sort of water printed names stamped all over it Mm -hmm. but um yeah we just got the scene and yeah it was ah, it was brilliant i was in shock for the entire time basically but a good sort of shock yeah you have theorized that the pod it's probably a Martell, younger brother of Doran Oberyn. You've shot down the idea that he would be Quentin. That would be a tough 
Yeah. Dragon burns in the future for <laughs> for our guy. Yeah. Bad beat for Quentin. <laughs> Bad beat for Quentin. Do you know who the P.O.D. is supposed to be and what the P.O.D.'s character name is? Literally, do you know your name? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there were discussions on set and there was a bit of a chat about trying to keep a bit of stuff a mystery for the fans and such and such. And the fact is, honestly, if I'm telling the truth, yes, I yeah. was in such a state of shock that they did say a name, which I remembered for a, for a good, like, five seconds and then <laughs> forgot because I was like, oh, my God, Dan and Dave are speaking to me. They're speaking to me. Oh, my God. There's, there's Peter Dinklage. Yeah. What's happening? Oh, no. Oh, God. Oh my god. Okay, so we need we yeah. need like the tool from Black Mirror that like penetrates memories the, yeah, from yeah. the episode Crocodile so that we can yeah. fish out from the recesses of your mind what the name yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. I I could really do with one of them because I've got a terrible memory as well. Um so basically I'm sticking to this younger brother of Oberyn and uh, Prince Duran idea because the sword I had uh in a sheath it was a scimitar was it was custom made for uh, Pedro Pascal to use as the Red Ooh, Viper of Dawn. Cool. Yes. Now, and I think there's a bit of someone was digging up a fan dug up some photos online. So it had actually, I think, been on set unless they just had some super super telescope lens from the outside of the fortress because the set was surrounded by this like steel wall. So I think it there might be a scene where it's already used by the Red Viper. So I'm like, man, I forgot the dude's sword. I didn't kill him because the mountain killed him. So we were definitely at least drinking, buddies. <laughs> That's Maybe amazing. half brothers. So did they tell you anything about how your character came to rule? Like how you found yourself in a position of power? Because obviously Dorn really recedes from the storyline and it's not until Varys's iconic casual mention <laughs> of the Prince of Dorne that we're even really given reason to consider that Dorne might enter the story again. Like, is there is there anything that even just for you to be considering as kind of background information for yourself that you were told that you could share with us? Anything that you know that we don't, basically? Well, I mean, I think everyone knows it in their heart. Basically, Dawn is badass. Of course they yes, need rep, man. <laughs> it's the best nation. But no, I was never taken aside and said, look, here's your backstory, blah, 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 blah. They didn't need to. Mm -hmm. I know my backstory. I know the books. I know the world. I'm sitting there. That's why when everyone's like, oh, really attentive in the meeting, mm -hmm. I'm sort of just lounging. I'm like, mate. Yeah, kicking I got, it. Yeah. I've got a mountain range between me and you <laughs> lot. We're, 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 I'm bowed, I'm bent, I'm broken. Yeah. You, you ain't got us. You ain't got us. We don't care about your dragons. We don't care about the White Walkers. Come at us, mate. I'm in the meeting, but to be <laughs> honest, after this meeting, I'm going to go and rescue Ilaria Sand because she ain't dead. Oh, then, no. then I'm going back to dawn, getting my homies, and we're rolling. We're rolling on y'all. What? <laughs> We were going to ask you about Ilaria, yeah. actually. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we'll just, because you mentioned her, we'll jump right to that for a second. Yeah. All the Dorn enthusiasts out there have been wondering about Ilaria for an eternity. We 
assumed when Danny burned the bulk of King's Landing, that was it for Ilaria. Yeah. But then when we see Tyrion discover Jamie and Cersei's bodies, he can't help but look around and say, hey, not as mm. much not as much of that ceiling crumbled as I thought. Mm. Maybe our yeah. girl Ilaria made it out of here in time. So what is your headcanon for Ilaria and your character moving forward? Is Ilaria an ally for the POD? Is Ilaria a threat to the POD? Is she going to want that power back? So one thing I'm grateful for, however, disagree with about the television interpretation of the books is that the Dawn is traditionally a matriarchy. The women are in charge. Yeah, Ariane in the books. Exactly, exactly. So I'm seeing myself as kind of like, I mean, they did tell me I was the ruling prince of Dawn. So I wasn't like some guy, because, you know, you get a few princes in Dawn, but you only get one ruling prince. They did tell me I was the ruling prince of Dawn, which was was nice. But I'm kind of thinking, listen, man, I'm going to go and say Valaria. We're going to have a good old chat. And to be honest, (laughs) I mean... I think she's a she's cool, man. She's a G. She should like I don't know. Maybe we get married. I don't know. Wow. But I'll certainly, certainly have her on the council to discuss who's who's gonna like marry me and then be the be the <laughs> ruling ruling female of Dawn because woman power, man. Woman power. Yeah. So in the Dawnish spinoff. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, Laura's. Definitely an ally. And it was a shame. She wasn't on set, obviously. But um, Indira Varma, the actress who plays Alaria, is a fantastic actress. And also a very strong feminist. I've read uh, some articles she's, interviews she's given about feminism and stuff. It's very inspiring. And I also saw her in Rome. Do you guys know? She was incredible. Yeah. Rome, one of our amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was brilliant. And also, of course, Tobias Menzies. Yeah, Brutus. Um, yeah, Brutus. yeah. So <laughs> since Rome, I'd followed Tobias and Alaria's acting careers, just like casual interest. So I saw Tobias at the uh, Almeida, which is a theatre in London, doing a Chekhov, Uncle Vanya. He was fantastic and a really brilliant actor. So it was a pleasure to meet him. I really wanted to meet Indira Varma as well. I didn't, but hey-ho, Dawn spin-off. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Let's talk about the scene at the Dragon Pit, obviously one of the crucial scenes of the final season. Mm. You've talked about the feeling of having, you know, Dan and David address you and being in these meetings, being in these script meetings. Um, mm. What was what was that experience like filming that being on set for that day in the Dragon Pit in costume with the cast? What, what were you mm. feeling at that time? Well, first of all, it, it wasn't a day. It was um, I think it was eight days wow. Wow. <laughs> or maybe maybe it was eight days, including the travel days. So it was, it was six or seven days filming that one scene. I mean, it was fantastic. I literally was in shock, a semi-state of shock <laughs> for almost all of it, really. It was so fantastic. It was lovely. And what was really nice to see was I've been on a lot of film sets and TV sets and in productions and stuff. Um, I've never had such a large proportion of really nice down-to-earth people involved, cast, crew, everyone. So it was a really lovely atmosphere. Uh, D&D were really down-to-earth. The cast were really, really welcoming, and they didn't have to be. I mean, like, we were there a week, basically, Mm -hmm. and they'd been there almost a decade. (laughs) So, But it was really lovely. They were all really, really welcoming, which was great. 
Who of all those people were you most thrilled to get to share a scene with? I mean, obviously, there are so many tremendous actors who are up there on that set with you. Was there one person in particular you found yourself thinking, I can't, I can't believe I get to be in a scene with person X? And then, you know, the flip side of that, is there any actor who's a part of Game of Thrones that you were like, man, I'm on Game of Thrones, which is incredible. But if I had only been able to share a scene with this person, it would have been X. <laughs> Yes, I will say it was, I mean, it was an absolute pleasure to be a part of it with all of them, absolutely. But Tobias Menzies, like I said, I've I followed yeah. his career, Edmund Tully. It, what was great is I went up like an idiot and uh, said, Tobias. And he was like, oh, yes. I said, Toby. He said, no, Tobias. I was like, no, Toby. Oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> and uh, luckily he took it in good humor and... Um, and yeah, we had a good little chat about theatre and plays and productions and stuff. So that was a definite highlight for me, being able to chat to Tobias, who I've who I followed the career of and just, you know, have a conversation with him. It was really good and see him work firsthand. Uh, it would have been lovely to, I did not meet either Melia Clark oh. or Indira Varma. And I would say it's Indira Varma who I would have liked to have met just because of, again, I've followed her career and yeah. she's really strong, sort of positive, um, empowering individual for women in the industry. And yes, yeah, so it would have been lovely to, to meet Indira. Come and hang out, Indira. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did, in general, the secrecy around the final season and this scene in particular, you know, we we as fans have gotten to see uh, on, on the last watch, the documentary and just in other interviews and snippets of information that have surfaced that, you know, characters who were never going to be in that scene were brought in to kind of throw people off the scent. And obviously we had all heard rumors heading into filming about, you know, fake scripts and extra endings. And yeah. it's, it's almost like impossible even now after the fact to differentiate fact from yeah. fiction. But the, the yeah. upshot is all the same, which is it was imperative that that nothing get out. So how did the secrecy surrounding that scene in general and thus your entire role in this series impact your overall experience with Game of Thrones? Because we would think, I mean, for us as just, you know, people in the world, that if you got to be on Game of Thrones, you'd want to shout it from the rooftop and tell everybody you could right away and just talk about it constantly. But obviously yeah. it would seem like that was something you weren't able to do fully as it was unfolding. So has that made it more gratifying after the fact to get to lean all in now or did that change something and did you feel like you were robbed of something as it was happening i never felt robbed i mean while i was on set i did think because obviously that's when we decide who sits on the iron throne yes um it's a big one you also yeah <laughs> you get the news about i mean gray worm says the line about Jon Snow stabbed our queen in the heart. I'm like, yep. he did well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. So, um, <laughs> but I was like, but to be fair, I would take those and any other spoiler you can throw at me to stay in this seat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did hear it was funny because on the set while we were filming, people were literally saying, Oh uh, yeah, they're they're filming like alternative endings and stuff. Right. Yeah. So the degree where the points we were like, hang on, is this an alternative ending? Um, oh, interesting. Then, yeah, 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 exactly. But then I mean, literally, I I had a chat with Dan and 
and it was just so obvious it wasn't uh he he came up to me and he was like uh toby i mean what a scene to get in on eh?" (laughs) (laughs) i was like yes i have said thank you already but thank you again yeah just just determining the future of the realm yeah that's all no big deal no big deal absolutely (laughs) i mean it was fantastic he was oh he was so kind as well he's he it was actually on the last day they had this fantastic it was like being being part of a historic moment like the end of a a star wars film yeah um, sort of thing and they were so lovely that dan and david went around the the whole horseshoe they asked they called a rap and then they asked everyone to stay seated for a bit they basically did a bit of a, a speech and then they went round each of the um recurring cast members who were finally wrapped um wow. so there were one or two they didn't speak to who were going for pickups in belfast because that was the end of principal photography that yeah. week mm-hmm. that was the end of dragon unit which is the spanish unit it was the end for an awful lot of the cast and crew. It was only going to be a much reduced um, cast and crew in Belfast doing pickups and stuff. So, yeah, they went around and spoke to each of the members of cast individually and, and just did really heartfelt oh. speeches about them, like really wow. lovely and moving, obviously, like really from the heart. And uh, I mean, that was about fifty-fifty cry rate, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually started going a bit, and then I thought, like, oh my god, I, it's not my place to to cry. I can't hold it in. This oh. isn't this isn't for me, but it's no. so emotional. Yeah, that must have been an incredibly moving thing to witness. Yeah, That's absolutely. amazing. Yeah, it was fantastic. And then and then Dan stopped at me. I was like, oh god, what <laughs> have I done something wrong? And he was like, Toby, you really epitomised the Dornish character. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> now, um, I hope he meant in my acting because <laughs> during the, when we, we had a day off on a Sunday in the middle of the shoot and on the Saturday night, they had the Spanish unit rap party. And during this, not only might I have um, thrown up over a balcony, um, <laughs> I also ran through the dance floor in my excitement and drunkenness, stopped, in, and in the haze, I saw Dan right in front of me on the dance floor looking a little bit shocked, and I just like danced the funky chicken for like three seconds and then realised what I was doing and literally ran off again. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> and I uh, the next day I thought, oh my god, unbelievable! I'm fired! I'm going to be fired! <laughs> what did I do? Oh my god! And I spoke to some of the other cast, and they like Toby is fine. We've all done something like that to, to Dan or David, and to be honest, they do much worse. It's fine. <laughs> the spirit of the sand snakes. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of that independent so, spirit, many fans were were surprised that the POD and Yara Greyjoy did not ask for the independence of their respective yes. realms. What do you think in your mind? What do you think happens? Does Doran rise up? Do they do they go for that independence? Yeah. So in in my mind, mm-hmm. we're going through. I'm obviously very new on the uh, Dornish throne. I'm sort of just pleased to be invited to the party, but also a bit bored. I don't know who half these people are. I just say I, basically, to get the meeting along so I can go and rescue Alaria. Uh, <laughs> then it gets to Sansa, who's like, oh, by the way, addendum. I'm like, oh, shit. 
I'm probably chatting to Yara off camera. Like, why didn't we think of that first? But then I'm like, don't worry. We'll just, you know, we'll, it's not going to last, is it? We're, we're going to roll on them soon. So whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Winter ain't coming to dawn. You, you mentioned you mentioned the word spinoff earlier. You clearly in, in your I? yeah you did in your in your mind here you have Hashtag a you have, you have clearly the the Dorn spinoff <laughs> playing out in your mind already. <laughs> yeah. Let's hear the official pitch because fans are clamoring oh, to return to the world. Right. You know we know that the Long Night that is not named the Long Night is in production. That there are other mm. spinoffs in the works. Mm. Seeing the finale got all these people buzzing about what might happen in the future. You know, getting into the future storylines with the characters we've seen here. What is the Dorn spinoff pitch from you? Let's hear it. Well, much as my ego would love it to be literally a Dornish spinoff, I, <laughs> I think I think it should be more of a spinoff. Seeing what happens under Bran. Oh, and by the way, Jason. Yes. Uh, and Mallory, I think you both said it. Bran the Broken. That's not cool, guys. Yeah. No, why that's are we not doing cool. that? No, it's not. <laughs> what yeah. are we doing? It's not good. Yeah. We gotta Look, give we, we gotta give our dude a better name. Seeing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Brand the brain. <laughs> yeah. Brand the brilliant. Yeah, so like Tyrion the Talker. I thought that was a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> but uh yeah, I liked all your comments about him uh, basically taking over whilst being manacled. It was yeah. pretty impressive. It's <laughs> just wild. It's a wild thing that that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh so I what I find. I was watching, whilst I was watching all the Oberyn scenes again, his conversations with Cersei about the treatment of children in Dawn mm -hmm. versus King's Landing, the treatment of bastards, the treatment of people, really. He was giving me the impression that Dawn is a lot more civilized, really. It's an, a much more just place. What's interesting, of course, is as soon as he was killed, Alaria then poisons a child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tough look so, for your girl, Alaria, yes. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but whatever. She was looking out for Ogres. <laughs> and he was, he was a cool dude. So. <laughs> but uh, so I think there's a lot of rich stuff. There's a lot of rich material to be explored in that that interplay between the different cultures and how they treat various subjects. Mm -hmm. like especially when in the story, the, the treatment of bastards and like, Tyrion, for, uh, Bran the Broker, geez, um, come on. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it's so prevalent in the story that I think it's a rich, rich mine to get material from there. That's my pitch. Okay, Dorn spit off. Yeah. You heard it. You heard it here, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Toby, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for uh, sharing a virtual digital cup of Dornish Red with us here. Yeah. Too. Hey, the only wine. <laughs> the only wine. Spend a, spend a little more time uh, reflecting on and celebrating the story that means so much to so many people. We, we sincerely appreciate your time and the POD will live forever in our the hearts POD! and minds. POD! <laughs> hey, can, hey, can I give a shout out to Lino Faccioli who plays uh, Robin Aaron? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What a king he was. <laughs> yeah. Before the internet in the last few weeks, I didn't know what glowing up was. And quite oh, frankly, yeah. I'm quite disgusted. A glow up. I'm disgusted. <laughs> I'm disgusted, guys. 
But anyway, Lino is a very nice guy. I may have bought him his first cocktail in Nashville. Oh, his first non-breast milk cocktail? Re- <laughs> oh. <laughs> breast milk with and a little bit of vodka and gin. <laughs> so some, some of the lords as well. My, yeah. Michael Bamberek and uh, Noel Bishop, who played some of the powerful men oh. who I wasn't strong oh. enough to be. But, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, shout out to you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much yeah. for being here. Thank Truly you, a pleasure. Toby. It was absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Binge heads, there's only one God and his name is death. That's right. And there's only one thing we say to death. Not today, bitch! <laughs> <laughs> Even though the show is over and this part of our podcasting journey is ending, this part of it, our love for this story will never die. So before we go, Isaac, Zach, Jason, and I, we each wanted to share our final thoughts on what Game of Thrones means to us yes. and why it will live forever for us. Growing up, my family would take regular trips to the bookstore. My parents were big readers. They wanted their children to be. And on one of these trips, when I was 11 years old, I unknowingly picked up the first two books of A Song of Ice and Fire, A Game of Thrones, and A Clash of Kings. I just thought it was another fantasy series like the Tamora Pierce novels I grew up with. And so did my parents. So they bought them for me. As you can imagine, I quickly learned that this story was rather different from other fantasy stories. It contained a lot more uh, mature themes. Sex, violence, tits and dragons, as Ian McShane put it. But also moral ambiguity, complexity in relationships, tension between fate and agency all the things we like to talk about here on Binge Mode. In retrospect, I think it helped shape my critical thinking to see the world with more nuance and to question conventional wisdom. And look, of course, it wasn't necessarily the most appropriate entry into sophisticated literature, but at least the books were long and dense enough that it took me until I was a bit older, about 15 years old, to crack open A Storm of Swords, which contains The Red Wedding. Anyways, when Game of Thrones, the TV show, came out, I was at first pretty skeptical, as I imagine many other book readers were. After all, book-to-screen adaptations don't exactly have the best track record. So I avoided it, even as it became an international phenomenon until my freshman year of college. I had caught up on the books by then, and the show was up to season three. So I binge-watched it, and to my surprise, I really enjoyed it. You know, seeing all these characters and places and events that I imagined in my head come to life was just absolutely thrilling. And even through later seasons when the show passed the books and it also became part of my job to watch it, the show really remained special for me. Looking back on the success of Game of Thrones now that it's over, I think on a meta level, the gargantuan success of a fantasy story is in itself a vindication of the genre that I deeply enjoy and love. I mean... How many stories have we heard from people who at first hand-waved the show because it had dragons in it and then later learned to love it? That's really the legacy of Game of Thrones that matters to me. Is that a story that contains magic and prophecies and face-swapping assassins became this huge piece of monoculture. And look, despite the critiques I have of how the story ended, I will be forever grateful that for as long as the show was on, the obsessive fandom of fantasy readers could be shared with the world at large. That's the gift that Game of Thrones gave to me. And now my watch has ended. I'll keep this short and sweet, which is a phrase perhaps absent from the binge mode handbook. 
With a song of ice and fire, Martin has constructed a world with a rich, complex history and a defined sociological consideration. He's populated that world with characters who matter and span the spectrum from good to evil. And he's positioned those characters within a plot that shocks and delights and flows as smooth as the Roin in summer. Good stories master one of these three goals. Great stories can get away with two. But A Song of Ice and Fire reaches all three and is transcendent for that achievement. When we criticize the show's missteps, it's because we love the story. When we debate and discuss and theorize for hours of podcasts and dozens of written pieces, it's because we want to be immersed in thinking about it. It's not often a story with so much resonant power enters your mind. So embrace it while you can. And like John and Daenerys at the close, hug it close. Stories wait, my little lord, old Nan tells Bran in the first book. And when you come back to them, why, there they are. Same with Thrones, with Hardhome and Jamie's speech in the bath and Roose Bolton's dagger to Rob Stark's heart. They're still there. Let's just hope that soon enough, they're joined by even more memorable tales from the winds of winter and a dream of spring. In A Game of Thrones, the first book in George R. R. Martin's sprawling, stupendous A Song of Ice and Fire saga, we're brought into Bran's mind as he lies in his coma following his fall. He's falling again, this time in what he thinks is a dream, as the three-eyed crow soars beside him, imploring him to choose, urging him to fly. Finally, Bran finds the strength to look down. Quote, The ground was rushing up at him now. The whole world was spread out below him, a tapestry of white and brown and green. He could see everything so clearly that for a moment he forgot to be afraid. He could see the whole realm and everyone in it. The best fantasy stories turn each of us into Bran in that moment, awakening us, helping us see and feel and know, guiding us as we soar into possibility, a whole new world unfolding beneath us. They transport us, their magic and their might, a portal to some faraway land, at once an escape from our daily reality and the cipher that solves something about that reality for us. Game of Thrones opened a whole new world for me, as it did for so many other people. I discovered the show first, then, fueled by the recommendation of my trusted colleague Andy Staples and by my own thirst to fall deeper into the world that Martin had dreamed up, I read the books, and then read them again and again, and haven't stopped reading them or rewatching the show since. And by the time season two aired, I was dropping a well in the books with <laughs> surely infuriating frequency. But it was almost reflexive, that quickly, automatic. The story had become a part of me a sacred text, fuel for my imagination and a salve for my soul. I recommended the show and the books to anyone I could and shared some truly joyous synced-up reads with friends. My buddy Steve and I used to align our workday lunches so that we could swap analysis while standing in line at the Time Inc. pasta bar. I read the books at home. I read them on park benches. I read them on the subway on the way to work. Shouts to the woman who kept stealing glances at the John Egret cave sex scene <laughs> over my shoulder on the one train way back when. Soon I was saying, ghost, to me, when I looked at my snowy white cat halo. Before long, I'd launched a pet project TV blog with two of my former colleagues, who shall remain nameless. No one knew we were doing it outside of a handful of our friends, and even though we could barely get through our actual work every day, we still wanted to spend some of the precious spare time that we had when we went home power-ranking characters or writing gushing odes to Rob's luscious curls or photoshopping sex jokes onto episode stills. Our passion for Thrones felt as big as the wall itself, and we wanted to share that with each other. When I accepted a job at Grantland, 
I did so in part for the opportunity to tap into that passion more regularly. Thrones had come up during the interview process, and it thrilled me to think of mixing in some direwolf talk with my baseball and football editing. I contributed to our weekly precaps with a hunger that not even a 77-course wedding meal could fulfill. Best of all, got to start talking about Thrones with UJ. <laughs> we wrote book club back and forth together, and when season five rolled around, we appeared on Chris and Andy's new podcast, Watch the Thrones. I think back often to our first live show back in New York before the season five finale when Chris and Handy named John the winner of the season. And we looked at each other with conspiratorial glee. Should we tell them what's going to happen to the Lord Commander in episode 10? Oh. Eh, best not spoil it. And then The Ringer, where those moments of feeling in cahoots with each other became more frequent during our After the Thrones appearances in season six. The show would move beyond the books and we delighted in uncovering each new morsel together. We parsed Brand's season seven vision like two prospectors sifting for nuggets of gold. Our eyes, like George Hurst's and Deadwood, peeled for the color. The boy the earth talks to, the podcasters the footage talks to. And then we received a great gift in the run-up to season six when our boss, Bill, issued, fittingly, seven fateful words. Hey, I have an idea for you. That idea was binge mode. More in the six weeks leading up to the season seven premiere, we published 60 podcasts on these 60 prior episodes of Game of Thrones that existed at that time. But we made more than just a show. Just as Dragonfire forged the Iron Throne, the fire of those frantic weeks forged our friendship, one of the great treasures of my life. <laughs> we shared many things. A dangerous reliance on coffee over sleep. Yes. A commitment to trying as hard as we could to make something lasting. Yes. And an unbridled belief in the power of fantasy stories. In season one, Rob says of old Nan, one time she told me the sky is blue because we live inside the eye of a blue-eyed giant named McCumber. And Bran replies, maybe we do. And I've always adored that line. A testament to the power of imagination and a reminder of how your life can change when you remain open to possibility. And it's not an exaggeration to say that Game of Thrones has changed my life. That going into McCumber's Eye with you and so many others who cherish this tale for binge mode and talk the thrones and meetups and so much else has brought me into the Shadowlands, discovering new mysteries, learning new truths, and forged a community as strong as any Valerian steel blade. In season eight, Vera says, respect is how the young keep us at a distance, so we don't remind them of an unpleasant truth. And when Tyrion asks what that truth is, Varys replies, nothing lasts. But what Game of Thrones means to us will. The community that sprung up around it will. The lessons that the story taught us will. Never forget what you are, Tyrion tells Jon in season one. The rest of the world will not. Wear it like armor and it can never be used to hurt you. And that's true for our fandom too. The world can be so alienating and isolating and it can be so hard to be unapologetically yourself and to say without fear of judgment that you love something fully. There's that moment in A Game of Thrones when Jon looks at Ghost and thinks back to the day when he found him. Quote, he was all alone, he thought, apart from the others in the litter. He was different, so they drove him out. Jon often felt that way, and so many of us have. But Thrones, like its fellows in the fantasy pantheon, like Harry Potter and so many other stories that we love, unites us. It teaches us that our courage comes not from hiding who we are, but from embracing it, learning to share it with the world. That the broken things aren't sources of shame, but of strength. That anyone can be a hero. 
In game, Lord Commander Mormont tells John, the things we love destroy us every time, lad. Remember that. But not always. Not with thrones. It's a life force for us. It's roots as deep as those of a weirwood tree, spawning a network across time and space, uniting us in shared history and memory and story and song. When Ned fought Arthur Dane at the Tower of Joy, he said, now it ends. But the best stories never do. The show may be over, but the world will always be there for us, waiting for us to arrive on the ships or dragons in our minds. In A Game of Thrones, Nan tells Bran, my stories? No, my little lord, not mine. The stories are. Before me and after me. Before you too. They're eternal. Everlasting, a part of the air that we breathe. Nan continues, stories wait, my little lord. When you come back to them, why? There they are. And so in a way, this is an ending. Thrones is an ending. It's waiting for us. And we'll always be able to fall back into it together. Heroism takes many forms in Game of Thrones, as in our most beloved fantasy stories. And that's because the key ingredient of heroism in Game of Thrones is pain. Bran's fall from the tower and subsequent loss of the use of his legs set him on the path to becoming the three-eyed raven and, shockingly, king. (laughs) John was tortured by the idea of not truly belonging to the family that he desired most to belong to. And that's the thing that propelled him forward in his path to becoming king, to becoming a respected leader among men. Danny, truly a hero before she burned King's Landing, was an orphan, treated as an object, treated as currency to acquire someone else's power. Tyrion, seen by everyone, by his father, as no better than a cripple, and was emotionally and physically abused by his father and sister. When this kind of storytelling dynamic is done cheaply, it can be frankly offensive. But when it's earned, and when it's done really, really well, it is deeply satisfying. And Thrones at its best did that. The desire for our losses and our pain, for our otherness and our strangeness, our lonelinesses, to end up in the face of a darkening world mattering in the grand scheme of things is something that everybody feels deeply, deeply, deeply in their bones. You dream about it, When you're a kid, you dream about it. When you're an adult, only you don't say that you dream about it. And so then Game of Thrones enters your life in the books too. And it's a thing that people rally around for that reason because it makes real in the world, outside of your imagination, a place where all your pain and suffering can mean you can become something great, not just be a person in pain, be a person who's injured, be a person who's seen as something else. And so I think on behalf of everyone here at Binge Mode, Mallory Rubin, Isaac Lee, and Zach Cram, I would urge everyone to just focus on those moments that brought us together, that lightning in a bottle that the show captured for a time, truly, that allowed people that didn't know each other to become friends, me and Mal. (laughs) And have those bonds endure as the story surely will endure. Because even though perhaps it didn't end the way you wanted it to, the journey was truly magnificent. And those discoveries, not just within the characters and the story, but the way those discoveries and realizations made you think about things in your life, that's the real magic of Game of Thrones. So with that, thanks for listening. And thanks, Mal. 
You're the best. You're the best. And thanks to Zach, of course, and Isaac Lee, and all of you who have listened to this podcast for five million episodes. (laughs) Well, friends, when you play the game of podcasts, you win or you die. That's right. There is no middle ground. That's what we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We also keep telling them thank you because, sincerely, we could not have done this without them, nor without the support of everyone else at The Ringer, nor, of course, without you, our blood riders. Thank you for listening and for caring and for inhabiting this story with us. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are to continue this journey in the future, and that you'll join us again for whatever that future might bring. Till next time, remember. If you think this has a happy ending, you were right because this was very special for us. Thank you. What about you? Who was your first? Well, I shouldn't tell you. Mother will be mad. I can tell you that uh, the bodies of two whores are taken out of uh, Prince Alfred Chambers. It's an awful mess. Terrible. <laughs> Disgusting use of a crossbow and awful. Yes, the, the blood on the, on the ground was a memorable shade of crimson. It's awful. <laughs> they never tell you how they shit themselves, eh, boy? Now! That's enough. We're going to go now.